And we're going to talk about later on what, where this idea came in that the state can take care of it. During the Reformation period, that kind of garbage came in. The state does not make anyone one flesh. They're not even present when these things take place. When I get, had a marriage, I would have a marriage certificate that they would give to me, and I would sign it, and the best man and the maid of honor would sign it, or the matron of honor would sign it, and we would send it to the county office, and they would look at it, and they say, well, now, according to this officer of the state, Pastor Webb, he's licensed to do this thing in the state. He said that these people went through the right rituals and the right statements, and he's saying that they are now one marriage. Good. Now we can put that in the files as being one flesh. Somebody asked me today about common law marriage. I said that's only because the state doesn't like loose ends sticking out. So when they see somebody living together for X number of years, they say, well, they're together long enough. We're just going to say they're husband and wife so we can get this part of our society straightened out. So the state does not make you, well, they only record the what you said and what you did that was affirmed by others that you're one flesh. If they don't make you one flesh, how can they make you two again? If God says, what I've joined together, no man can separate, only God can separate it, and he won't do it until death. He's already told you what the terms of the marriage really is. I'm going to go through the rules of the hermeneutics, and then we're going to just take a, a, a break and have a special song here. When, uh, what rules does hermeneutics teach concerning marriage, divorce, and new relationships following divorce? Now, what is hermeneutics? Hermeneutics is the science of interpreting. Biblical hermeneutics is the science of interpreting Scripture properly. In Bible college and seminary, we had hermeneutics and homiletics. Homiletics teaches you how to preach. Hermeneutics teaches you how to break down the Word of God properly so you don't get a false conclusion. For example, it is not good hermeneutics to open your Bible and read the verse that says that Judah went out and hanged himself, and then to flop it open again and put your finger on another verse that says, go and do thou likewise, and that, that's the will of God. See, that's, that's the way some people do. I know of a pastor one time that was reading the Bible and it said something, go northwest. And he says, God's speaking to me. God told me to go up here. So he had had a call from a church way up in Canada, way out western Canada. God must be in it. He went out there. Because he read that verse and almost had a nervous breakdown and had to leave. You see, proper hermeneutics say establish a scriptural premise for anything that you want to believe. Now, a scriptural premise means it's not what he says or she says or they say. It's what does the Word of God say. The second thing says, this is very important, passages which seem unclear should be interpreted in the light of those passages which are clear. And then a verdict can be rendered. Did you get that? The plain thing is the main thing in hermeneutics. Not some, for example, how many of you are, have been baptized for the dead? Anybody? Oh no, wait a minute, it's in there. Paul talked about somebody being baptized for the dead. One verse, what does it mean? I don't know what it means. Well, I guarantee you I'm not going to go off and start doing something if I don't see any evidence or how it was done or where it was done or when it was done in the Scripture. It's just one very different, strange verse there. Some cults have picked it up, and they've got people in their church that are waterlogged. They're baptizing all the way back, back into the 1600s, and they're going through all of this historic family stuff because they found one little verse there. Oh, boy, I'm getting them all saved. I had a half-sister whose son was like that. Somehow he got a hold of her body after she was dead, took her, to that church, had her and was baptized for her, put the casket back in the trunk of the back of his pickup and brought it to the funeral where I had the funeral. 
dirt all over the field, all over the casket. But he, it's so important for him to get her to the church and be baptized for her. And she was already a born-again Christian. The plain thing is the main thing. And then rules for interpreting words and sentences. The speaker or writer sometimes states just what he wanted to accomplish. You have to find out, what, why did he write that? Who was he writing it to? What were the circumstances in that day? You've got you to get the context in proper order. Okay, I've, I've heard some pastors take off on verses. One guy wrote a book and gave it to me before he published it and wanted me to critique it. And he was saying that if you have faith, the Bible says there's 120 years before uh, you can live 120 years. And he said, if you have faith, you can live to be 120 years old. Well, that's taken out of the Old Testament where it said the, the uh, life of man is 120 years. Well, you know what he was talking about? God was saying that in 120 years, I'm going to judge the earth with a flood. The time of man is 120 years. So he said, well, that means I can live to be 120 years old. So he wrote a whole book on the subject. He could live to be 120 years old. And by the way, last time I saw him, he doesn't look like he's going to make it. <laughs> Carefully consider the immediate context. Again, you have to know to whom and why they were writing. Thirdly, the Bible must harmonize with itself. The Bible does not contradict itself. God is not a God of confusion. It may look like it's saying something differently, but when you get the clear verses all in line to establish a biblical principle, then go to the unclear ones and find out why they're different, what are the circumstances, to whom were they written, you'll find out that all verses harmonize. And you'll find out when all this twisting and turning take place tomorrow afternoon. <clears throat> Light may be thrown upon a doubtful or difficult passage by comparing it with other statements of the author on the same subject. So if Paul says here in 1 Corinthians something, and they say, well, that's, that means this, and you go over in Romans and he says something else, I've had people tell me that Paul said there in 1 Corinthians 7, where it says you're not in bondage anymore, that means you're free to remarry again. I said, if it does, then Paul's double-minded. He's a schizophrenic and you can't trust anything he says. Because over here in Romans he said, and if you marry while your husband's still alive, you're an adulterer. In the 39th verse of that same chapter of 1 Corinthians 7, it says, They that know the law know their woman is bound to her husband so long as he liveth. But if he'd be dead, he's free from, that, free from that law, and she can be married again only in the Lord. So if Paul's saying one thing here, one thing that's different there, then you can't trust him. But I know he didn't say something different, so you're wrong in what he said in 1 Corinthians 7. Examine the statements of other writers on the same subject who are of equal authority. There are a lot of people who say today, well, Jesus never said anything about sodomy. He said, didn't need to. He gave pure revelation to Paul. Paul said it for him. That's all you needed. You see, find out what did Jesus say, what did Paul say? And that's, that's the thing that really strangles some of these people. They have tried to literally twist and turn Paul's writings to make it mean to something totally different from what Paul actually said. But they get in trouble when they go to to the Gospels where Paul, Jesus said in Luke 16, 18, whosoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whosoever marries her that was put away in that divorce causes her to commit adultery. And they'll say, well, you, you, can't, you can't just take that verse now. Just, just hold on now. You've got to go over to Matthew and put everything of Matthew or wrap that around Luke 16, 18. No, 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 you don't. You take what that says and go to Matthew and say, let's find out why you sound different. That's proper hermeneutics. The last one is the use of common sense respecting the things that we know of ourselves. I keep telling people, you know 
down in your knower that divorce is wrong. Why? Because God's put it there. You know it. And you know every divorced and remarried person knows it. That's why they're so full of shame. That's why they come to church early and stay late and mow the pastor's lawn and take the babysitter's kids and, and anything you want. They'll do anything. Why? Because they're full of shame. They'll read a stack of books that high saying they're okay. And they go home, they're still miserable. Why? Because it says the shame of adultery will never leave. It's not in your mind. It's in your spirit. God put it there. As soon as we come back, we're going to get into the clear verses. We're going to go through the clear verses one by one and show you what the Word of God says. Let's go on very quickly now to a very important part, the clear portions of the New Testament concerning divorce. The biblical portions that establish a clear doctrinal position concerning marriage and divorce by which all unclear verses should be compared are. Now, let me say it again. What we're going to do, hermeneutically correct, we're going to take find verses that nobody has to explain to you. I've asked children that are very small children, I read the verse to them and say, what does that tell you? And they say, marriage is for life. I ask some person who's in the mess, well, you can't go by that. You know, conduct changes theology. Conduct changes theology. I've seen people who were Armenians when they got off, ran away from their wife and married someone else, all of a sudden they became strong Calvinists. Hello? It'll, take, it'll, it'll change your conduct. I mean, conduct will change your theology. Whatever makes you feel right, whatever makes you feel good. My wife did a, a, a research paper dissertation for her doctoral degree on Calvinism and Armenianism and came up with the fact that neither one of them have any security because the Armenians think they're lost and saved and lost and saved. And the, Arme and the Calvinists, you say, are you one of the chosen? I hope so. You see, this is why I keep telling people our security is in our relationship to Jesus Christ. Don't try to patch up an old experience. Where are you with him right now? Where are you walking with him today? And we don't want to get hung up on all those things. You see, all error is truth taken to an extreme. You hear me? All error is truth taken to an extreme. And that's what most of our cults are today. They're, they've taken some truth. If there was no truth, nobody would be stupid enough to follow them. But they take a little bit of truth, and they just butter it up and flower it up and do everything they can to it and make it look good. And then they lead people off astray. And before they know it, they're in trouble. So we're going to take the very clear verses and we're going to show you about six verses that all say the same thing and we don't have to interpret them because I've had so many people say, well, that's just your interpretation. I said, I didn't interpret anything. I just read to you what the verse says. You're interpreting it and consequently you say I am because it's not hard to interpret it. Let's go through some. First of all, <clears throat> the first one is Luke 16, 18. Very extensive, long verse. Whosoever divorces his wife and marries another, commits what? Oh, let's just put some names to it. Whosoever divorces his wife and marries another, let's say Jack and Jill, here they are, two separate in single individuals, and they get married, and God says he glues them together as one until death. And then it says that Jill divorces Jack and receives a divorce certificate. Now, you know a lot of people that have divorce certificates. Are you married? No, here's my divorce certificate. Oh, that means you're not married. Yeah, I got my divorce certificate. I'm not married anymore. Oh, I see. Whosoever divorces his wife and marries another is married again in a blended family. No, that isn't what it says. Whosoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. You're calling it a, a divorce, but if you remarry, God calls it adultery. 
What? Now, the only way that can be adultery is if you and your wife are still one flesh, if you're married to someone else and God calls it adultery. Adultery is sex outside the marriage. Hello? Let's go to that. Here's Jill divorced Jack and married Dave. Got a marriage certificate. Think about it. The only way that can be adultery, Dave and Jill are legally married by society, and Jesus calls it adultery. He says if they marry again, it commits adultery. But then, now you have Jill and Dave, and then Jack comes, Sue comes along, and Jack marries Sue. After Jill has already gotten a divorce from him, Jack marries Sue. Jill is already remarried. God calls that adultery. But now, Jack marries Sue, and God says, She's causing him to commit adultery. Now, how can that be adultery? The only way that could be adultery is Jack and Jill say they won't even fit together. Jack and, Jack and Sue and David Jill would never fit together as one flesh. They can't fit together. I remember one presentation one time where they used to hand out different colors of clay and then mash them all together. And when they got all through, well, they're talking about, say, now separate all the clay, will you please? How do you do that? Well, that's, that's the way marriage is. You can't separate it that way. It says that Jack is committing adultery, or Jill is committing adultery when she divorced Jack and married Dave. And then Jill, or Sue, came along and married Jack, who was divorced, but the innocent party. And he was committed. She was causing him to commit adultery. The only way that can happen is because Jack and Jill are still one flesh and will be until they die. By the way, it says there, the first word in that verse is, whosoever divorces his wife. Whosoever. That's the same word found in John 3.16. Whosoever believeth on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Who's that clue? Whosoever. Anybody on earth that will repent of their sins and trust Jesus Christ as Lord will be saved. Why would it change it here? Whosoever. Oh, yeah, but that was before I was a Christian. No. Whosoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whosoever marries her then is put away in that divorce causes her to commit adultery. Jill, Jill and Dave are legally married by society. Remember that. They've got a marriage certificate. Jesus calls that adultery. Jack and Jill are, uh, are were still one flesh regardless of man's laws. Jack, marries Sue, uh, Jack and Sue marry. Jack was the innocent party in the divorce. You heard of the innocent party, they're allowed to remarry. Jesus said even if the innocent party remarries after that divorce, it's still adultery. I didn't say that. That's not my interpretation. Some of you are you saying? I'm not saying. I'm only telling you what it says. I put some names to it. The clear verses and portions of the New Testament concerning divorce biblical portion that establish it are first of all let's go back to Mark 10 I, I've got to get back to Mark 10 for you to, we've got to go through some verses here first okay Mark 10 and the Pharisees came to him and asked him is it lawful for a man to put away his wife tempting him tempting him what were they trying to do they're trying to get him in trouble remember they came to him one other time and said uh, should we pay taxes well, they knew that there were a bunch of Jews that were rebelling against Rome and said no Jew should pay taxes and so if he joined them then the Roman government would get it. And if he said we should, should pay taxes, then these rebels would be against him and try to kill him too. And what did Jesus say? He said, well, let me see a coin. Oh, whose inscription is there? Oh, that's Caesar. Oh, well, give to Caesar what Caesar, give God what's God. And they went away confused. They couldn't trap him. Well, they're trying to trap him again because of the two schools, which our brother spoke this morning, Halal and Shammai. Halal was a the liberal one of you danced in the street with your hair down or if you burned the bagels or if you yelled at your uh, your wife yelled at you while your parents were around and embarrassed you or, or if you even found a woman that's more attractive than your wife 
In fact, the, the high priest in that day would marry a 13-year-old girl and keep her for about three years, give her a bill of divorce, and go pick out another 13-year-old girl. That was the practice they were doing that day. That's why they got upset at Jesus' teaching. So they came to him and said, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? And he answered and said unto them, what did Moses command you? He said, let's go to the one that you count as your spiritual authority. And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement to put her away. And Jesus answered and said to them, For the hardness of your heart, he, Moses, he, wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And they twain shall be one flesh. So then there are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Now that was to the Pharisees. Then the future church talked to him about it. There in verse 9, uh, or verse 10. And in the house, his disciples asked him again of the same matter. And he said unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her, because they're still joined. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. Now, is there any question about what he was saying there? Is that some obscure hidden idea or thought there? It's just as clear as Luke 16, 18, isn't it? So now there's two verses. Now go to Romans 7, 2 and 3. They that know the law know that a woman is bound to her husband so long as he liveth. But if her husband be dead, she's free from that law. But if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. That is not an act. That's a state of being. She is an adulteress. You try that today, boy, I'll tell you, you really ruffle feathers. Are you trying to split up this beautiful Christian family? No, I'm trying to tell them that Jesus said this is not a Christian family. It is adultery. Well, you're being judgmental. No, I'm simply telling you what the Word of God says. It is judgmental. Jesus Christ gave us the law so we would know what we're supposed to do. Not one whit of the law has been removed. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. All those commandments are still in effect today. We're not saved by them, but they are the ones that guide us to Christ and make us realize what we need to repent of in order to have a right relationship with God. And that's a clear verse. She should be called an adulteress. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. They that know the law know, excuse me, be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor, and he goes on and on. None of these shall inherit God's kingdom. I've had some theologians say to me, well, Brother Webb, that is not talking about heaven. The Bible says the kingdom of God is not meat nor drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. It just means they won't have as much joy and happiness in this life as they would have had had they not gotten divorced and remarried. I said, really? Is that, boy, I'm really thick on that subject. I'm sorry. I said, let's, let's try to work this out hermeneutically, can we? Uh, Matthew 5, if a man looks at a, with, at a woman with lust in his heart, it'd be better, he'd be better off if he'd pluck out his eye and cut off his hand and cast them from him and go out into eternity without those members than to keep them and not repent and go out into eternity to be cast, out into, be cast down into the lowest parts of hell. So I said, what you're saying is a man just looks and doesn't pluck out his eye and cut off his hand. He'll go to hell, but if a man divorces and remarries and lives in adultery the rest of his life, he's just not going to have as much happiness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. I said, does that wash theologically for you? But remember, it goes on to say, in such were some of you, there's always hope. 
if they repent of it. It's a lifestyle. He's not talking about sin there in 1 Corinthians. He's talking about a lifestyle. If you live that lifestyle, it's evidence that you never really committed your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said in Luke 14, if anybody comes to me and isn't willing to hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whosoever be of you that's not willing to forsake all that he hath to take up his cross daily and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. And then that last verse is, and he, whosoever he be of you that's not willing to forsake all that he hath cannot be my disciple. You know what? We have a bunch of people today that have gotten a, an inoculation of religion just enough to keep them from getting the genuine salvation. I believe in Jesus Christ. I tell them, so does the devil. And he trembles, but he's not going to heaven. Jesus said, I am not, you know, I like what one man said, Jesus didn't come to save sinners. He came to save repentant sinners. If you don't repent, he said, you'll perish. Amen or oh me, which is it going to be? 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11, look at that with me. We're finding the clear verses now. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Let not the wife depart or separate from her husband. But and if she depart, now by the way, that's the only loophole I find anywhere in Scripture, but and if she does, thank God it's there because I've known of wives that have come home from work when their drunken husband sitting in a chair and fired a gun, almost hit, him, hit her with a gun, with a bullet. And another one that threw a knife at her, his wife. Another one that put his fist right through the wall next to her face. Another man, he, she, he came home, she had prepared a nice dinner. He sat down at the counter grabbed her by the hair, took the food and smashed it up her face, stuffing her nose full of the food, dragged her into the bedroom and violated her, violated her over and over again. I said, move out. But don't go to church. Don't tell them at church what you're doing because they'll send you down to the singles group and have you hooked up in a week to another one. Don't go there. Realize when you move out, what does it say here? But and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband and let not the husband put away his wife. There are come times when it's absolutely unbearable. I've, I've recommended women to move out, but I said, don't go and ask anybody at church for any idea today because they'll have you hooked up again with someone else. Stay recognizing that you've only separated in hopes of reconciliation. Hello? Living in two different houses does not mean you're, one, you're not one flesh. If you live in New York City and your partner lives in San Francisco, God, when he looks down, he still sees you as one flesh. And what they do, what your partner does, goes on their record, not yours. What you, how you respond goes on your record. And then verse 39. They that know the law know that a woman is bound to her husband. 1 Corinthians 7, 39. <clears throat> bound to her husband so long as she liveth, but if her husband be dead, she's loose from that law. And she can be married, but only in the Lord. For Christians, we should marry other Christians. Hebrews 13, and four, 13 verse 4. Adulterers and whoremongers, God will judge. Some people say, this isn't fair, Brother Webb. You don't know what this man or this woman has done to me, and my life has been destroyed. I mean, God isn't fair. I said, just hold on. God's gr grist mill grinds very slowly, but it grinds very finely. In God's time... He'll do it. Don't try to wiggle and squirm out, James says. Don't try to wiggle and squirm out of your problems. He said, but let patience have its perfect work that you might come out mature and more complete to serve the Lord.
You need, the things that you have to, you and I have to go through, God lets us go through them. Just like with Peter, it said of Peter, Satan, it's Peter, Simon Peter, Satan hath desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when thou art recovered, what? Strengthen your brethren. And what did Peter say in the book of Peter? He says, don't deny the Lord. Don't deny the Lord. Don't deny the Lord. He found out, the, he found out what it cost to do that. And so when you and I go through these experiences, we're not supposed to wiggle and struggle and don't complain and don't murmur like they did in the Old Testament. God, I don't understand it. Your way is perfect. I will obey you. I'll walk with you. Whatever you want me to do, just teach me, show me, Lord, help me to grow. And I'm not going to stand. I'm going to get busy serving you more than I've ever served you before in my life. I'm going to find ways that I can minister to others. If my partner ever comes back, I'll have to find room to fit them in. Why waste time? We haven't got that much time before Jesus is coming again. Hello? You lived without them before they came. If you have to, you can live without them after they leave. I know some precious Christian people today that I've, that for years have been ministering to and supporting our ministry. I mean, they've got faith. They're believing if he ever comes back or she ever comes back, I'm just going to thank God for it. But in the meantime, I'm not going to stop. I'm just going to keep on going. And that's why I keep saying change the name of that from standards to doers. Yeah, just keep on doing. I, I've seen some women... I. I Five years later, they've gained 70 pounds sitting on a couch with about five boxes of Kleenex saying, I don't know why he's not coming back. I said, dear God, if he does come back and sees this, he's going to thank God he left. <laughs> he ought to come back and find himself somebody that he'll say, I really, really missed it. Father, in Jesus' name, anoint your word. I pray, Father, that we'll hide the word of God away in our hearts and let it be a lamp under our feet, a light under our path, that we won't be complainers and grumblers and gripers. We will be doers. And know that you love us with an everlasting love. And you, and you alone promised you would never leave us. You would never forsake us. And that's why, Lord, it would be sin for us to ever allow our husband or wife to ever be our best friend. Because you have to be our best friend. You said that if in comparison, our love for our wife and our husband and our mother and our father and our children, our love for, into our love for, for you should be like love and hatred that it wouldn't make any difference what anybody says or does to us. It really doesn't make any difference because our best friend is still going to be there. Help us to know that and walk in that truth, I pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I uh, passed over a page yesterday that was very important, and I last this, this morning when I awakened, I thought, wait a minute, I haven't done unclear verses yet. We did the clear verses. Remember yesterday we said, here are all the verses that are clear, unquestionable, what it says. Now you put those all together, and from those clear verses, you establish a doctrine that marriage is for life. Period. And then, you, now we're going to go to the verses that the five-word school has used to try to twist it all. The five words, except it be for fornication. And they have based their total theology on those words. We're going to understand after we're done this morning where they came from, why they're there, and what they really mean. So, because some of you get bombarded and you don't know how to respond to it. And by the way, by me saying it this morning, you will not get it, and it will not be yours, because you'll be lucky if you remember 5% of what you've heard in this conference 24 hours later. Now, let me say that again. Someone said preaching is like setting a case of open pop bottles over about 10 feet from you and taking a bucket of water and throwing it and trying to fill them. 
You know how much water it takes before you finally fill those bottles because you can't absorb it all. That's why you have to take down notes to help remember. That's why you need to get tapes to go over it again and again and again. I want to tell you something. I still study all the time. I still go back and refresh my mind continuously, and I've been doing it for 25 years. If this is a, an important doctrine, if this is something that is going to revolutionize the church, then you and I have to know it down in our spirit. And we've got to be able to say, but the Word of God says, but the Word of God says, but the Word of God says, and walk away. If, if they don't change, don't worry about it. You have planted a seed, and God's Word is always good seed. All it's looking for is good soil to land in. Okay? Jesus gave the illustration of the sower that went forth to sow seed. Some fell on the hard path, and the birds came and took it away. And that's a symbol of Satan taking the Word away from them. Then the next one into shallow soil sprang forth. And how many of you have seen people, oh, hallelujah, glory to God, I'm just so glad I'm saved. Jesus done this. And about three months later, the dirt hits the fan, and everything doesn't work out right, and they walk away. That's the shallow soil. Then it's the one where they, glory to God, hallelujah, and then they get all involved in the, the, the riches and the problems and the uh, situations of this present world, and the weeds come up and choke out the life. You know, only... One out of four made it. And that's the seed that fell into good soil. See, all that we're saying this week we're, is presenting good seed to you. And you know you can walk out of here, people can walk out of here and be changed none whatsoever. People can walk out of here and be more hardened toward the truth than ever before. And others go out saying, glory to God, now I have the truth and I can walk in it. What's the difference? It's not the seed. It's the soil. What is the good soil? Those that hear the Word of God and do it. I've had people, I've told things, that, well, I don't care what you say, I'm not going to do that. I said, I didn't say it, God said it, and you do whatever you want to with it. And I don't walk away and say, man, I just flunked completely. I'm, I'm just a total failure. No, 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 no. All I am to be is a witness. Please get that down in your heart. God did not tell you you had to be a soul winner. He said you had to be a witness. What is light? Light just illuminates. It doesn't change your brain. It just illuminates so you can see. And you and I bring light. What is the light? The Word of God. Bring light to them and then let the Holy Spirit do the rest of the work. I, I don't have the time for the whole story, but there was a man over in Europe somewhere, over in, I wish I could remember, England is it? Yeah, I think it's England. An elderly man that every day went out on the street and handed out gospel tracts for 40-some years, every single day. And one evangelist was talking over in another country one time and asked a man who was in charge of a huge military base and found out he was a Christian. He said, how did you become a Christian? He said, I was over there in England, he said, and I was walking down the street, and this old man walked out and handed me a tract and said, uh, uh, do you know for sure if you died tonight where you'd go? Do you know you can go to heaven? And he said, he left that track with me. I was a little upset. And he said, but I got to my room and I read it and God convicted me and I accepted Christ. And then they go on down the line. Another person who was a leader in another nation, another person who was a head missionary of a, a huge mission station. And he found about 15 or 20 people everywhere he traveled. And they said, he said, how did you get saved? Well, I was over in England and I was walking down this street and this little old man came up and gave me a track. He said, brother, I'm going to go find that man. He went over and he found out that the man was in a nursing home. And he went in and started talking to him. He said, have, have you ever heard anyone ever come back and thank you for, for witnessing on the street? No. 
He did you ever know that you ever impacted anybody's life? He said, no. Forty-some years. Every day. He didn't know it, but he's impacted the whole world. This man sat down and took these testimonies, these people started giving them to him and showing them to him. He sat there weeping. Started weeping. I didn't know if I had any fruit or not. I just did what I knew the Lord told me I was supposed to do, be a witness. That's all we have to do is be a witness for Jesus Christ. Leave the rest up to him. You may never know until you get there. You know, the fellow that, the evangelist that was in the meetings where I got saved, I was just a punk teenager. I went for, he has no idea what happened after he left that little church in Fremont, Nebraska. When I come up and say, hey, brother, look how God has used me. Look at all these others that are in the ministry. Look at these others that are on the mission field today that God has allowed me to impact. Whew. You talk about compounded interest. We don't even understand compounded interest. Turn with me to Matthew. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, verses 5. We'll start with verse 3. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him. There it is again. Saying, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but the ministry it gave. Sorry, I turned two pages here. There. And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the twain shall be one flesh. Now there's nothing different, is there, from Mark when I read that yesterday? The Gospel of Mark, right down the line. Wherefore there are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Exactly what is said in Mark. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement to put her away? And he saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives, but, but from the beginning, not at the beginning, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, what did he say? You heard it said that thou shalt not commit murder. But I say unto you, if you, look at, have, if you have hatred in your heart towards someone, you are a murderer. He raised the bar. He raised the standard. And Jesus said, I know what Moses said in the Old Testament, but I say unto you. And once he says that, forget what was said before. Okay? It's over. Now we have more light. We have more understanding of what God's Word has to say. But I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, oh, there it is, except to be for fornication, shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away, doth commit adultery. Now, why did he have that in there? You see, Mar Matthew is written to the Jews, Mark is written to the Romans, and Luke is written to the Greek. So you'll find that there's a difference in each one. of Matthew was definitely written to the Jews. First of all, in the genealogy, it talks about, it shows that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Well, the, the Romans and the Greeks weren't that interested in that, but the Jews had to know that this was the one that had been promised, that this was the Messiah. Whenever the Jews were looking for an earthly kingdom, so all the time when Jesus talks about the uh, heaven, uh, the, the kingdom of God, he talks about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. If you get over to Mark and Luke, he talks about the kingdom of God. Because the Jews wanted an earthly kingdom, he kept saying, my kingdom is not of this world, it's of heaven. So 
When you read Matthew, I told you, you have to find the context. You find, have to find out who they're writing to, why they're saying it the way they said it. Now, the other translators will tell you, and we're going to get into that later, they say, well, you've got to translate Mark and Luke and Romans and 1 Corinthians, all of those in the light of what's said in Matthew. First of all, Matthew was the last gospel written. What did the poor Christians do that had only Mark and Luke? If that's all they had, they were in tough luck, weren't they? See? But Matthew, when it was written, was written for a specific purpose, and it says, except it be for what? Now, if you go out and talk to people on the street today, you say, what's the one grounds for divorce? Adultery. Where do you find that? It's somewhere there in Matthew. It says, except it be for adultery. I said, you're reading reverse visions. I mean, revised versions. Don't go with those reverse visions because they're not right. It is not what it says in the the Greek language. It says pornea, which is fornication. Some people say, well, that, and we're going to talk about pornea in a few minutes. What, what's the difference? Does pornea just mean sex before marriage? Or does it mean any kind of sexual impurity? The important thing you have to understand is why did Jesus say fornication to the Jews? And the, let the Bible be its best interpreter. Go to Matthew, the first chapter, and it'll show you exactly why he said it. And the Jews knew why he said it. In Matthew, the first chapter, it talks about Mary and Joseph. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when his, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found with a child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her fiancé, what does it say? Her husband. They're only betrothed, but back in that day they called them husband and wife from the time they were betrothed. Even before they, they finally uh, went into the father's chamber and, and, and completed the marriage act, the physical act of marriage, they were called husband and wife. Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily, to divorce her. For what? What did, she, what did he think she had committed? Not adultery. She wasn't married, was she? They were only betrothed. He thought she had committed fornication. What was he going to do? He was going to divorce her. You had to go to the Sanhedrin and get a legal divorce paper in order to be separated from the betrothal. Nowadays, you're lucky to get your ring back if, you, if you're just engaged to a girl and you break up. But back then, they had to go through a legal system of getting a divorce and had to deal with the problem of the dowry that had been paid and so forth. So the Jews understood exactly what he was saying. He was saying to the Jews, the only time you can ever get a divorce from now on, you Jews, because of the idiosyncrasy in your society is during that time of betrothal, during the time of engagement. And Joseph was going to get that betrothal until the angel of the Lord said, no, that which is in her is of the Holy Ghost. Take her to be your wife. And so he took her to be his wife. So they understood completely. Now, this is not new. It was not new to the Jews. In fact, if you would go back to Sodom and Gomorrah, it said that Lot had two daughters. And it said he had two sons-in-laws. Now, if you have a son-in-law, is your daughter married? Hello? Okay. But the Bible says that when the Sodomites came and tried to come into Lot's home, he was, he was legally required in that day to protect with his life anyone that comes under his roof. And when they tried to come in and molest the angels that had come into his home, he said, don't do this terrible thing. Here, take my two virgin daughters. Oh, wait a minute. 
You got sons-in-laws, how could he have virgin daughters? Hello? They were only betrothed. So they understood it all the way back there. There was no, no question in the disciples' mind. In fact, you can see by the response. His disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it's not good to marry. But he said unto them, All men cannot receive this thing. And I appreciate it, but Brother Mike had said, They were not responding to what Jesus had taught. They were responding to what the disciples said. It's better never to marry. Jesus, yeah, it's easy for you to say there's some people that need to be married. They have to be married. But you have to understand that that except it be for fornication was not except it be for adultery. It was to the Jews to tell them the only time you can ever get a divorce is if during the time of betrothal you find that one or the other has committed fornication. You understand that now? Now let's go back to, to uh, Deuteronomy 24, the very verse that they were talking about when they came to him. Moses gave us a bill that said we could have a bill of divorcement. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Let's take a quick look at that and read it. Let me tell you, a lot of people use that to beat people over the head. And this was all done during the Reformation period. All these false doctrines came in during the Reformation period. Deuteronomy 24.1, When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her, and write her a bill of divorcement, giveth it in her hand, and sendeth her out of his house. Or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that she is defiled, for that is abomination before the Lord. And thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God hath given thee for an inheritance. I've had people that are divorced and remarried in the ministry today tell couples that are trying to be restored you're committing adultery if you have a relation, physical relationship with that person again. I said, no, 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 they're not. Well, it says right there in Deuteronomy 24. Oh, you know what's interesting to me? The Reformationists went back and pulled out that verse. Why didn't they also talk about having multiple wives and having slaves and all the other things that they said you could do back there? But they used this as a key to tell you that you can't go back to your first wife and you can't go back to your first husband. Well, let's see what God says about it. You know, Jesus, first of all, separated his father from that teaching. He says, Moses told you that because of the hardness of your heart. But look at Jeremiah, the third chapter, and see what God himself says about it. Jeremiah chapter 3. When I saw this, I was so blessed. And I'll tell you, it certainly has stopped the mouths of a lot of people today. Jeremiah 3. And by the way, this is God speaking. It isn't Jeremiah speaking. God speaking in verse 1. And he says, if you don't have a reverse vision, if you have the King James Version, it says, they say. God didn't say, I said. He said, they say. What did they say? If a man put away his wife and she go from him and he become another man's, shall, becomes another man's, shall he return unto her again? Shall not the land be greatly polluted? What's he quoting? Deuteronomy 24, isn't he? He said, they say. Moses said, in other words, that you can't go back to your first wife. But listen, but he's talking to Israel. But Israel, you've played the harlot with many lovers. You're my wife. You 